Okay, so good morning, everybody. And welcome to, I think this is now our third installment of the Buddhist Chaplaincy Speaker Series. And this morning, I am delighted to welcome Renshin Bunce, who's joining us today. Renshin is the author of three books, um, Entering the Monastery, which is an account of life at the San Francisco Zen Center, Love and Fear, Stories from a Hospice Chaplain, and her third book is Remembering Myogen Steve Stuckey, and that's a collection of stories about the late former abbot to whom Renshin is a Dharma heir. Renshin lived for seven years at the San Francisco Zen Center and worked for 12 years as a hospice chaplain. And she's now retired and lives in Eureka in California and leads two sitting groups that are both affiliated with the Everyday Zen Foundation. So welcome, Renshin. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Vanessa. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to put you on gallery. There you are. Hi, Max. <laughs> Couple of familiar faces. So, which which window to enter to once again tell this familiar? wonderful story. It is so beautiful up here in Eureka. It is so beautiful to be to 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 get out of bed, look out of the window and be grateful to be alive. I, I think this is the this is the accomplishment of spiritual practice. I come from a difficult background. I came to meditation as a last resort. I came to meditation, as I think almost all of us do, to hoping that I could find a way to settle my mind. I came to meditation for self-improvement. <laughs> I just, I recently heard Norman Fisher give a talk, and in the talk he said, you know, there, there are two goals in spiritual practice and one is self-improvement and most of us i watch the people who come to practice with me they're hurting right we want to stop hurting norman points out the other goal you know the, the first goal is it's focused on the self me 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 what about me what's wrong with me what's right with me what am i going to do about me norman points out in more advanced practice, we actually, the point is, drop the self and begin to practice for all beings. I thought that was so great. And it is a natural progression. And it is certainly, <clears throat> it's certainly my story. As Vanessa mentioned, I lived at San Francisco Zen Center for seven years. I was, I was in my late 50s when I left my conventional life and moved to the monastery and moved to Tassajara, just deciding to give everything up and plunge in completely. If a little bit was good, a lot was going to be better. The monastery was one of the many <laughs> times in my life where what I got was not what I expected. The monastery did what it did really well. And Max, who's, his black and white picture is here on the bottom of my screen. Max was already living at Tassajara when I arrived there. He was very young. Hi, Max. Hi, Ryan. I, re <laughs> I, rem I remember several of our interactions at Tassajara, and that's 20, over 20 years ago. Yes. I had I I trashed my life. I trashed my conventional high heels, red fingernails life because I thought that I'd live at Zen Center forever. So I thought it was safe to be in my late fifties and have no money. Um, after seven years, it was time to leave Zen Center. Whoa, that was 
So what was I, what was I going to do? And by that time I was ordained. To me, the, the essential, the essential meaning of ordination is the vow and the vow is to be helpful. And it's not, it's very important to me that the vow is not taken. It's not something that I take. It's not something that any person from the outside gives me. There's too much I in I take the vow. What I saw after a couple of years, as I am so fond of saying, was that the vow took me. So there I was. I was, <clears throat> by that time, I was, <laughs> I was already collecting Social Security. I was that old. I was driven by vow. I had no, no, no money. And I needed a job. <laughs> I, this perhaps is becoming more common. It was, it, you know what it was, it was really scary. So I had a friend who had gone through the Buddhist chaplaincy training, and she was a volunteer chaplain in a regional hospital. And she was finding that rewarding, and I liked her stories. So she said, why don't you, why don't you do that? So I thought I'd give it a try. So I was, I, I, I think it was 07. I'm pretty sure it was 07 when I went into the Buddhist chaplaincy training. Just loved it. I was still on staff at City Center. Um, once a month, several of us would pile into someone's old car and drive down to Redwood City and sit, sit, sit with nice people and listen to Gil and Jennifer and Paul. Oh, God, I thought it was terrific. <laughs> um, like many people in that training, and people who I've met subsequently, I liked it better in theory than in practice. So I don't know if I assume some of you are in the current training. In those days, you could get away. <laughs> you could get away with not doing your volunteer work. You could just come down to Saudi Center once a month and be happy. I think that's changed. And I think I was in the training for nine or 10 months before I realized, oh, I, I'm going to have to do volunteer work. I, I, yeah. So I went to Laguna Honda and this is the old Laguna Honda. <sighs> there was in that, as you may know, in that huge Laguna Honda is the safety net city funded county, city, county, in San Francisco. So if you are chronically ill and you have no money, no resources, no family, this is where you end up. <clears throat> so it's really the most, pretty much, the, the Zen hospice has a wing there. So there is the hospice wing. But in general, if you're really, if you're really in need, you go to Laguna Honda. So that's great. And that, and there's one chaplain and a bunch of volunteers. So that one chaplain was taking a small group of us around the hospital, and he told me that he wanted me to visit on the women's ward. I could talk to the women. That's fine. But when we were walking around, we passed the AIDS ward, and there was some guy leaning in the doorway wearing a leather jacket, and he, he looked at the group of us and he said, please come here, visit here, we need you. So I said, okay. <laughs> the head chaplain objected. He said, no, no, you should stick with the women. I chose the AIDS ward. I bought a new pair of black Levi's, my dress pants, for my first day at Laguna Honda. I printed out the 23rd Psalm and I put it in my back pocket. And somehow I thought what I was walking into, the picture in my mind was a private room, clean white sheets, white curtains blowing in the breeze, and one 
very sick man lying there. And what I got was an extremely large room with beds lined up on either side. I, I wish I knew how many beds there were now. My memory is it was really a big room. It was a shock. And it was not clean white linen and curtains blowing in the breeze. It was noisy, messy, dirty, complicated. I introduced myself to the staff. There's a little office. And they said, fine. And they didn't have time. Everybody. And this now this is an old story. But even then, perhaps particularly in government-funded health care, everyone was understaffed and overworked. So fine. Thanks, chaplain. So I had somehow to find driven, right? What drives us? Necessity. I was driven to walk into that huge room and start. And start by walking up to a stranger and saying, I'm the chaplain. Those guys taught me. They began, they began my education. What is help? You don't say, I hope I didn't say I'm here to help. I hope I didn't say, what do you need? They showed me. Oh, man, they would, some of them would pull me, you know, chaplain, I need to talk. And we'd go find a quiet place somewhere. And they had stuff they needed to say to someone, not like deathbed confessions, just here I am. Here, do you see me? Here I am. So I began to learn to listen. I'm sure in those visits I tried to fix. <laughs> so they'd say stuff, I'd say stuff, and they'd say, thank you, chaplain. That really helped. That was interesting. I made, I made mistakes. I made terrible, I made one terrible mistake. Still regret it. Still try not to do that again. One time when I came in, they said, um, Chaplain, they, you know, pointing to a man in the bed right there, right there. They said, he's dying. And I'm like, oh, that's too bad. And then I realized what they meant was I should be with him. He was dying. Oh, that's part of what a chaplain does. So for the first time, I sat with someone who was dying. As I remember it, he was not able to talk. He was no longer responsive, but he was dying, and he was essentially alone. So those guys on Laguna Honda, they got me going. After that, I did CPE, right? clinical pastoral education, the hospital residency that most um, Jennifer when I told Jennifer that this was working for me, that I thought I'd like to go ahead and be a professional chaplain, she told me, you know, most of the work is in hospice. And I thought, well, that's good, because I already knew that I needed to learn about death. And there are very few opportunities to do that. But I had helped my mother die. And what I saw was my mother was... <laughs> She was death avoidant. She was she was everything unpleasant avoidant. And what this meant was when death came for her, death came as a stranger, and she was terrified, right? That makes sense. So when I saw my mother's terror in her final minutes on earth, reflecting on it later, I did think, huh, so if I'm going to die too, Maybe I should try to be a little friendlier with death. So when Jennifer said most of the work is in hospice, all right, <laughs> my goal is being met. But before I got there, before I could get a job, I had to do this one-year hospital residency, and that's where the learning really took off in, in many ways. It was... Um, 
it was very aggravating because part of the time they made me do <laughs> personal growth work with it was all I was always a generation older than anybody else. Most of CPE is seminarians. Um, most of right, well, most of the world is Christians. So young seminarians, and they were willing to do personal growth work, and I wasn't, but I did it. I had to do it. The main thing was I would be assigned to a particular part of the hospital. I was the chaplain for this section of um, this big, big hospital. And once again, I, I was with um, California Pacific. That huge, huge, huge building, there is one staff chaplain for the entire building. All the other people, if you're in the hospital and someone comes up to you and says, I'm a chaplain, it's someone who's been doing this two weeks. <laughs> someone who's trying to figure out how to do this. So since I was a part of a group, we were supposed to keep track of our visits. And something that I saw a month or two in was I was out Christianing the Christians. <laughs> Nobody prayed more than I did. <laughs> my, my prayer box was off the chart. And I, and, and I think, now, that's what? And Jennifer taught us a formula for how to pray that I never stopped using. I never stopped praying. But I think I stopped inflicting it on people. <laughs> and on reflection, all this time I'm still living at Zen Center, and so I'm still forced to do a ton of Zazen, get my mind quiet enough that I can understand what I need to know. I was acting like a Christian because I thought that's what they expected. And I didn't want them to be upset with me. It's a pattern. So I realized if I were going to continue in this work, and I really wanted to continue in this work, that was corrosive to me. I The patients, many of them, you know, I remember... Oh, many, they were perfectly happy to have some nice person come around and pray with them every day. <laughs> but I couldn't continue that way. So fairly early in my training, I had, I started to say I had to, I had an opportunity. Stop. Figure out what you believe. I was talking about God. Well, who do you think God is? when you say God. So I found a way, had to continue to keep for the next 13 years, riding that razor's edge between the patient's needs and my needs. Because if I didn't stay true to myself, I wouldn't be able to continue in the work. When there was a crisis in the middle of the night in a major hospital, it's not the one-page chaplain who gets paged. <laughs> it's the it's the newbies. So, um, one of my one of the important stories from that time in my life, important to me, I got paged at two or three in the morning. Boy, your heart starts beating fast when that happens. Put on some black clothes and drove across town and showed up at the ICU. Um, a woman greeted me. She's the one who'd asked for a chaplain. She said, are you a nun? And I said, well, oh, I'm a priest. <laughs> she said, okay. She disappeared. Never saw her again. She's the one who asked for a chaplain. The There was a fairly young man, young to me, he was probably in his 50s, and he, he was having a really difficult death. And his wife was with him, and the death was difficult for her too. She was screaming, throwing herself across his body, crying, begging him not to die, right? There's the scenario. New chaplain, 
here to help. They don't want a chaplain. <laughs> the person who wanted a chaplain has left. So here's a time to figure out what is help. The question in an event like that more takes the form of what am I supposed to do? So once again, I had my handy 23rd Psalm. I never stopped using the 23rd Psalm. Wow. And it is so deep and beautiful. I have a little Gideon paperback New Testament. Still have it all marked up. I went through the Psalms and I crossed out all the hate and smiting <laughs> so I could read Psalms to people. So in that ICU cubicle, I read the 23rd Psalm and they're like, okay, step back, left them to their, there was for those two, there was no one in the world but each other. It didn't seem reasonable for me to leave. I'd already had that experience. You're there. What are you supposed to do? How can you help? How can you help these people? So I found a chair and I put it in the hall outside of the cubicle because those cubicles are so small. And... I started to chant to Quan Yin silently, which settled me. And an ICU at three in the morning is really a trip. It's actually a huge sacred space. And I sat there and I listened. And I listened to her crying and nurses walking by and beepers going off. sat there thinking, what am I supposed to do? And received, received information that carried me through all the, all the years of my work as a chaplain, which was, you represent the fact that there is a spiritual side to this. You are a visual reminder of the spiritual side of life, the nurses, the patients, family, anyone looking at you is going to be reminded, we are not just a piece of meat. And this death, what we call death, it's not just a physical event. That was pretty good. That was really, because for most of the years of my work, I never stopped. I thought I was good at the work. And the reason I still think I was good at the work is because I never stopped asking, what am I supposed to do? I worked with many chaplains who developed a script. And I, again, I saw that <laughs> back in the days of prayer. I saw that if I visited one patient and whatever I did in that visit worked, right? Oh, it got a good reaction. Then I would just keep doing that. <sighs> so I worked with, with people who would enter a room and read a passage from the Bible and leave on every visit. I don't get to do that. I'm a Zen Buddhist. <laughs> I'm operating under instructions to Keep turning to beginner's mind. Keep greeting each moment fresh. Keep keep every time, every time I enter a home or a room, I've never been there before. I don't know what they need. The only way to find out is to listen, which is really hard. You want to walk in and I, I, I say you, I don't know what you want when you walk into a room. What I want is for people to think I'm terrific. <laughs> I want to, you know, the old Bing Crosby movies where he'd be a Catholic priest and there'd be a problem and they'd call Bing Crosby and he'd come in and he'd solve the problem and everybody would say, thank you. And he'd leave. That's what I wanted to be. I'm, <laughs> I'm not Bing Crosby. 
so as the time went by, I saw, oh, what there is, the gift that I, as a Zen Buddhist priest, and I always, you know, they, they always, no, I'm not going to interrupt myself because that's so important. The gift that I, as a Zen Buddhist priest, had to bring to the event was this awareness of beginner's mind, this willingness. And I'm going to say, <clears throat> through thousands of hours of Zazen, developing the courage to walk in fresh and not have some kind of shtick. My beloved teacher, Yogan Steve Stuckey, died. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary. Steve was great. Steve remained my teacher for 20 years because he never told me what to do. He never told me who to be. He didn't, he didn't criticize and correct. He made a greater demand than that. <laughs> All Steve ever asked me to do was to be who I am, which meant I had to get quiet enough to strip away some of the external frills I developed to get through life. I had to I had to let that emerge. And that's what we as Buddhists can bring to a visit where we are spiritual care. I very strongly believe that to be true. What else? There's another one in the CPE. I love to tell these stories. I like to say that it took me about five years to learn how to listen. That's just a number I pulled out of the air. I uh, <clears throat> the, the difficulty, right, everyone, if you're in chaplaincy training and you're making visits, probably already your friends are saying to you, oh, isn't that hard? And when you work in hospice, everyone says, oh, isn't that hard? And what was hard about it was being a part of corporate healthcare. It was it was really hard <laughs> having bosses and um, going to meetings and working on computers endlessly. And my cat just jumped up on the table. You want to say hello to the people? My cat Mags. So there's there's a movement that is starting in this country um, called being a death doula you've probably heard about it right? birth doulas are established freelance people who help people <laughs> in health care and i thought that would be great i love being freelance so i went to a death doula uh training there's my cat's tail very very highly regarded um and in that training the guy talked about the importance of listening. And then we broke into small groups and we practiced listening for 15 minutes. <laughs> I, I left the whole, all four days should have been about listening. Listening is so hard. It is so hard to get my ego my wanting to look good, to be wise. It's so hard to get that out of the way. So never became a death doula. So I like to say it took me about five years. I did eventually work in hospice. It was, it's all home visits. So I liked the freedom. I like driving around, listening to Bob Dylan between talking to people about death. <laughs> but I was the, when there was a crisis that no one else knew how to handle, I was the person they called. I liked that too, right? I liked being that person. But yeah, exactly. But one one story from that, one um the way that goes, Max, I think you need to get down, Cooper. Go on. Go on. Yeah, not now. No? Okay, sit over there. So that's how you're 
your phone rings and it is someone saying, oh, you have to go see these people. And in this case, this was a fairly young woman who had come last ditch attempt for treatment at Stanford, come across the country with her family. And they were staying in, a, in a, I think it was an Airbnb and the treatment had not worked. She died. So um, Ren go help them. I've never met them. I know very little about them. And they're in drama. <laughs> and there's an unforgettable moment. Okay, I'm on my way. Set the GPS, arrive at the house, walk up to the front door. And as I'm lifting my hand to knock on the door, I just thought, oh, shit. This is... I had no idea what was on the other side of that door. And there's no do-overs. There's a lot of learning, but there is a certain imperative to get it right the first time. So how do we do that? I mean, that particular visit, that particular visit came out okay. That particular visit is burned on my heart those poor people. And there is always practical stuff to do. And it's important not to get hooked by the practical stuff. Oh, good, here I am being helpful. In that case, they needed help with the mortuary. They really needed help with the mortuary. So here's a story. I was very close with Blanche Hartman at City Center. Blanche was my ordination teacher and I'm also a sewing teacher, so we were very tight. And I also was very close with Blanche's husband, Lou. So Lou was dying in the old Zen hospice on Page Street. <clears throat> Beautiful scene. <clears throat> Lou is non-responsive in the bed, and the room is full of us. And we're all sitting with him, accompanying him, listening with our hearts. Beautiful. This is the way we do it. As I was sitting there, I was sitting cross-legged on the floor by the bed, and a thought entered my head to check his nasal cannula. And, and, and I thought, no, wait a minute. That's, that's not what you're here for. Relax. You're sitting sawzan. But then the next thing I knew, I was standing up and I was adjusting his nasal cannula. I couldn't help it. I had to do something. And it didn't look like it helped Lou. So this urge to fix is really important to keep our eyes on. The Being the chaplain, being helpful, it's so, what is so available in that is taking the position of power. <laughs> I'm here to help, and you're the person who needs help, which is not helpful. To learn to listen, to learn to meet fresh, and to be willing to be on the same, to be equal. On my refrigerator, I have a picture of Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton is saying, our job, mm -hmm, our job is to love everyone without stopping to judge whether or not they're worthy of it. So being a chaplain, <laughs> walking, walking up to strangers, all kinds of strangers, and saying, I'm the chaplain, how are you, over and over, is the best opportunity to learn how to love unconditionally, to greet with a fresh mind, to drop the script. And we say Zen. I don't know if any of you are Zen students. I always say Zen because I started in Vipassana, but I became a Zen student because my teacher was Zen. So we say Zen is the study of what it is to be human. So it's my patience. 
I could say, I could say training in the monastery. The other monks were showing me what it was to be human. But I'm going to say in my years in the monastery, I still was so consumed by myself. I still was not free of that self-centered fear. Yeah. So it was very hard for me to actually be able to see others, hear others. But being a chaplain is going to knock it out of you. Now, my cat is lying on my... So the other thing that I have written down is where does help come from? What What is this help? This help that is so necessary. And there for me, we get to the mystery of Zazen. And it, and it has not stopped in my life. I'm now, yeah, I've been a priest for a long time. It's so great. What I still think is the secret is to get quiet enough that the information can arise, right? That's the teaching. It's all here. We're born Buddha. Everyone has Buddha nature. How do we access it? And if I'm, if I'm continually creating an acceptable personality, you want me to pray for you? <laughs> I got the power. <laughs> There's no room for that information to arise. So now that I'm retired, I retired almost two years ago, of course, could not continue to live in the Bay Area and moved up to Humboldt County for lower priced housing. It's really nice here. We got trees, we got water, we got so much water. <laughs> so I am a hospice volunteer. Very cool. Never go to meetings. <laughs> no bosses. <laughs> Very little charting. So a couple of weeks ago, I was going to see my lady, and she's in a pretty big facility. It's a pretty good facility. When I arrived, the nurse was there. They were changing her catheter. They said, could you give us a few minutes? I said, sure. Stepped out. Here I was. And, and I heard someone calling. So I walked in that direction and I went through these big double doors. And here was this long hallway, completely empty, except for one old lady. She's leaning on her walker, standing by the door to her room. She's going, hello? Hello? So I walked up to the old lady. I said, hi, what's up? She said, what time is it? And I looked at my watch. I said, well, it's 2.30. She punched her watch. This is how I learned she was blind. She punched her watch, and her watch said, the time is 5.30. <laughs> so she argued with me. <clears throat> so this is another point. You never argue. We went in her room, and we sat down. And again, she asked me, what time is it? It's 2.38. She punched her watch. Her watch said it was 5.38. And then she said, Alexa, what time is it? <laughs> and Alexa agreed with me, fortunately. Ha ha. Don't argue. Don't say I told you so. So the, it was, I love that story because in a way, I think, as nearly as I can tell, we are all standing in a long, empty hallway calling out, hello, hello, anybody there? I'm feeling alone over here. I could do something practical for her. I looked up the make of her watch on my iPhone, and I set her watch to the right time. Great, I did something. All those years and all those hundreds of visits. And I kept, I was always asking, what can I do to help? And behind that is the question, what is it that people want? What do we want? And this comes back to listening because clearly what everyone wanted, I think what we want is just to be seen, 
is to have others say, yeah, you're here. Yeah, you're here. I sat with a woman yesterday, sat vigil for a woman who was dying. And um, she was non-responsive. She did die an hour after I left. So I would say to her every once in a while, I'm still here. You're not alone. I'd say, you're doing great. You're doing great. You look really good. And something that I began to say to dying people that I think is helpful, I'd say, you understand what you're going through only goes in one direction. Which is a way of saying, you're you're actually not going to come back from this one. You're not going to get better. And that seems to be a release. I can talk a little about dementia. A lot of the patients on hospice have dementia. What are you supposed to do? Again, what would be helpful? One of my trainers in CPE, he was, boy, did he and I clash horns. (laughs) It was amazing. But he had really good information. He told this story. After World War II, there was a ward full of young men who were comatose in what's called a vegetative state, a ward full of them. And the chaplain would go through that ward every day, and he would talk to each of them. He would tell, he would say their name, he would say his name, he would tell them the date, and then say a little more. And when I began to do this, I'd maybe tell them something about the news, or I'd tell them what I saw looking out of their window. I'd give an extended weather report. Some kind of really gentle reality check. And the point to this story is, One of those young men came out of his coma and he said he lived for that. That was, that was what he had in his life. So always seemed like a good idea to me. And I never stopped, never stopped doing that with my patients with dementia. And after that, it's an open question. Read to them, even sing. Or just sit, just sit and listen. So that is, I've told you about the old lady standing in the hall, and to me that story is everything. A world full of people, hello, hello. And the extent that we will go to, to feel that we're seen, that other people recognize that we exist. Um. Just looking at the newspaper, we see that's that's quite something. So what is help? It's not the power position. It's not the script. There is no answer. It's never black and white. It's always each situation. What is help here? What what can I do here? Yeah. And then you have uh, the entire world as your teacher, as we say in our ordination ceremony. And that's what we're here for. So that's what I, th- I think. I, I think I told all the stories I really wanted to tell. And we have time for questions and answers. Or questions and something. <laughs> if anybody has something. I just noticed I have my book here. I remembered to. So this was going to be. This was going to be. A big. Important popular book. But I couldn't find an agent. And I went ahead and I published it myself. So it's a small book. Love and fear. It's on 
Amazon or bookshop.org. Um, it's a small book, and I have heard from a number of people that they found it helpful. And you repeat the name of the book, Renshin. We couldn't see it very clearly on the screen there. Yeah. The name of it is Love and Fear. Yeah. And if you go to Amazon and enter my name, you'll see the three books that I've published. There's a question from Joshua. We have a raised hand. Yay. Hi, Joshua. Hi, Renjan. Thank you for your wisdom. Um, greatly uh, appreciate everything you shared. I'm a chaplain and a uh, mindfulness meditation facilitator at um, Rikers Island Prison. And um, oh. <laughs> I work with, uh, I work in the maximum security facility. Um, some of the men are shackled to a desk all day and then put into their cells at night. And many of the things that you've said have been things that I've learned over my time as a chaplain and as a facilitator. But one situation that keeps coming up, and I would wonder if you could give me some help and insight into this, is that inevitably most most of these um, are younger men. Um, they have been, uh, they can be in Rikers uh, from a month uh, I have one young person who's been there for 10 years and hasn't yet been to trial. At any rate, inevitably, um, someone in the group will, or a couple of people, either part of the gang or not part of the gang, but they'll come in and they'll uh, purposely uh, interrupt and make a problem, disturb the group, and um Every time that happens, I've tried a different way of dealing with that and either and I just continue to have a problem with how to effectively address that um, individual or individuals with the rest of the group there or even if I'm just talking with one individual. So I thought maybe and I do try to bring beginner's mind to it, but it's a difficult you know, there's always the immediacy of the potential for violence and um, there's the other people to consider. So, yeah, that my question is, how can I more effectively deal with a situation like that? Wow. Wow. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> I have no idea what what comes up what comes up for me something that I learned that we used to say in the monastery about people whose behavior was <laughs> outside the norm was they're showing us their suffering and we actually were being snarky oh he's showing us his suffering today but that has stayed with me. So, so one reaction that I have, because as you tell that story, I'm thinking, why would they do that? Right? What do they want? So, so who in the room is in need of help? Who is really needing to be seen? Beyond that, what to say, what to do. I bow to anyone who does um, any going into prisons. I I did a little bit for AA. I went I went to San Quentin, and you know my teacher was one of the people who brought um, Buddhism into San Quentin, and they had a very strong sangha, which, as far as I know, is is still. But I never heard about. about a person whose need for intention was uh, attention was so strong that they had to 
So what is there for us to do but try to stay loving and and greet it fresh. How long have you been a chaplain at Rikers? For nine months. Wow. You think you're going to be able to keep doing it? Yes. Wow. Thanks for doing it. Do you, do you go in as a Buddhist? Well, actually, I'm I'm a rabbi. <laughs> so <laughs> um, some people call me a Jubu, but I prefer to think of myself as a really i'm i'm there and i tell them that as a, a, a mindfulness meditation facilitator so uh -huh, um uh -huh. great that way if you go in as a buddhist then uh, in new york then you only get to work with people who have officially declared themselves buddhist so that way i get to work with people of all religions so i try to introduce um, and I'm thinking more and more how to do introduce uh, and I'm I'm a Vipassana and Zen Buddhist practitioner how to introduce that without um, making them you know uh, feel uncomfortable. Um, but that's another thing I struggle with how to do that uh, how to introduce yeah. those concepts without yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's. To talk about me again, something that I should have said, will say now, is I didn't visit as a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. I visited as a human being. And and almost always they'd say, well, what are you? Mm -hmm. And I learned to say, I'm as, as it happens, the tradition that brought me to the work is Zen Buddhism. And I always claimed my priesthood, that authority. So I'm a Zen Buddhist priest. But here, it's what you believe that's important. And people would ask, would I teach them to meditate? Would I? And I, I don't think I tried to teach anyone to meditate. The woman I remember asking that was profoundly deaf. And what could I do? Um but if they'd ask me what was the deal with Buddhism, I might I might spin out a couple minutes about the Four Noble Truths to certain people if it appeared they could hear the information. I remember I would say, "Do you under Do you understand? You do have some control over your thoughts. <laughs> Just plant that in there." But I know there are those guys in New York who are very much visiting as Buddhists and teaching meditation. And so thanks for reminding me. It's important for me to say that's absolutely not what I was doing. And thank you for doing what you're doing. I just, um, it's a population in need and sounds to me like you're really jumping in the deep end, Joshua. <laughs> thank you. And here's Insight Santa Cruz. Hi. Oh, I I uh, forgot to change my um, my name there. I am Shakti, and um, I just wanted to say I I also studied Muth um, Myogen. He was my teacher. Did you? Oh, yes. I'm so glad. Yes. Oh. Yeah, and um he he married us right after the Tassahara fires. He Oh. Well. <laughs> I know it was real touch and go in 2008 when uh whether or not he was going to be able to to do it, but but um I forget who was coordinating it for him but they were like don't worry he's gonna be there and he was somehow um yeah, that's what he was like <laughs> yeah but um yeah I studied with him I think around 2002 I started studying with him and um I I 
I also um, am in the last throes of the Buddhist Deco Chaplaincy Program. And um, so I also have that in common. <laughs> and I'm, um, I'm coming to all this. Uh, um, I have a, I do, the reason it says Insight Santa Cruz there is because I also um, practice with Vipassana and um and i help coordinate um a meditation group for people with chronic illness and disability because i live with a, a i live with that as well and so what i've discovered is that um i haven't and i and i'm so really interested in the last caller because i i have this thought that somehow my living with my difficulties um, will make it so that I can go and do maybe chaplaincy with inmates and and people who are dealing with not having freedoms because in I guess because I don't have a lot of freedoms in ways by living with my disability it limits what I can do, but it also makes me wonder if I'm physically able to do these things. So there's a lot of complications, but, um, but I also discovered that there's a lot of people around me that, that, that um, the chaplaincy is coming up with people that I interact with who are also disabled and, and, because there's so many things that can arise when you are in um, a body that kind of creates this, there's this unspoken hierarchy that can arise with, um, with people around uh, those who, who live with disability. And so I find myself, wanting to step into that position. And I, and what I've comes up is that it's not about fixing, but it's about serving, right? Just, just sort of like, okay, I'm just here to hear what you have to say, not to make it, fix it, make you better necessarily, but to just be somewhere for you, for someone to, be able to be heard in whatever's going on. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm not here to fix you because you're not broken. If I enter a situation and, and I start trying to fix it, I'm implying, oh, you're broken. But nobody wants that. I'm going to say that you have a, a unique opportunity to be of service the connection between chaplain and patient, between two humans, the connection is everything. And what creates the connection is the feeling of being seen, heard, understood. Few of us know how it is to be you. And yes, all of us have to drop, oh, I'm going to fix, I'm going to help, right? that power position, but you know. So someone else who has a chronic illness is going to be really happy <laughs> to have you come in with this, with this badge. I'd say that that's where there's a huge possibility for you. Going into prisons, all that stuff, having the faintest idea, <laughs> having the faintest idea. I also want to say to you, please, um, and get the book that I just finished about Steve because it's going to make you really happy. I just I ordered it. A handful. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, because the the stories the when I when I saw Steve stories. Yeah, because his anniversary of of his death is approaching. Um. Sure is. It somehow, uh, came I came aware of your book 
I don't remember how. And then I looked at your profile and I was like, oh my goodness, this person. A gift for you. Right. I it for you. And then I saw you wrote a book about chaplaincy and I'm like, whoa, wow. <laughs> so, it's about time we met. Do you, do you live in the big insight um, Santa Cruz? Cause yes. I'm very close friends with Judith Randall. So I visited Judith when she lived down there. That's an amazing place. Everything that Gil has done is absolutely amazing. <laughs> he's a he's a good role model for us all. Yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm in Santa Cruz, so great. So yeah. keep the connections warm. That's all. That's all we can do. Yeah. Well, it was an honor to get to to say a few words to you. So thank I'm you. Very happy to meet you. Yes. Very happy to meet you. Thank you. Uh, hey, well, it looks like we're at time. That that went so quickly. Renshin, thank you so much for thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you everybody who's attended um, the Buddhist Chaplaincy Speaker Series. Um, greatly benefits from donations and dana so i'm putting a little link in the chat um, in case you would like to donate or contribute towards this session today and if you've registered for the event and been receiving emails there's usually a little link embedded in that email too so thank you so much um we're going to say goodbye and i'm going to ask the the current students the current Buddhist chaplaincy trainees to stay on the line and we'll say bye-bye to everybody else. Thank you.